Okay, so welcome to episode seven of the iCare Education podcast. And this week we're doing a COVID-19 special where we're going to have a look at all the challenges that the optical industry is going to face and what's going to happen going forward from commercial and the clinical perspective. So we've got three special guests, as well as Peter, our usual guest, um, all independent practice owners. We have Nicola Gatehouse from Ball and Gatehouse Opticians. We have Nick Romney and we have Brian Tompkins as well. So if I get you all to give a brief introduction of yourselves, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. So if we start with you, Nicola. Okay, so um, I've had my practice now for about five years. I own it with my husband, who's an optometrist. So I'm a dispensing optician. Um, prior to that, I was Vision Express for 15 years. And prior to that, I was six years in Melson Wingate, which is like a sort of a, a larger independence that doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I've got a bit of background in, in independent and, um, and multiple work. So, yeah. Excellent. And you've been um, making all the press recently as well, haven't you? In the optical I've press, anyway. I've been keeping myself busy. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing weekly updates for um, the College of Optometrists. And I do a bit on LinkedIn as well. So, yeah. Excellent, cool, excellent. So how about you, Nick? Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm uh, one of these sort of sad third-generation optometrists. My, my grandfather lost his job in 1913, and by the time he got home, he was an apprentice optometrist. Um, and, it, and it all went downhill from there. So I'm based in, uh, I'm based in Hereford, um, which is a, a large market town, about 80,000 population, probably 160,000 in the county. Um, and we've had some uh, some good things and some bad things come out of this. Uh, I think it's um, it, it's it's challenging when you've got a big practice, but it's also challenging when you've got a very small practice. Because if you're small, you've just got yourself um, really to, to 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 be looking after, but also to keep things going. But if you're larger, you've got a responsibility for 21 people in terms of their families and their aspirations. And basically my job, I think, is to look after them. Um, and if I look after them, then the looking after of the customers and the patients will just fall into line. Uh, but if we don't look after the staff that we've got, um, then we're not going to have any business to be able to offer to the patients. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And how about yourself, Brian? Do you want to give a brief intro to yourself? Yeah, well, kind of most of the audience probably have seen or heard at some point from either a BCLA ex-president perspective or just being out there on stage uh, doing silly things with magic with the patients, <laughs> generally kind of having fun in practice. Mm -hmm. uh, the practice is essentially fourth generation, albeit I'm the fourth generational person, but it's 45 years I've been there now. So seen all the changes, but maybe not as many as there are now. And as Nick said, um, you know, we're looking after our team so that they can look after themselves and also the patients for the future. Um, almost certainly like Nick and probably Nicola as well. We're open for emergencies as needed, but closed or otherwise. It's uh, a, a, a veritable arcade at home at the moment with every product under the sun uh, just behind me on the dining room table. <laughs> Not directly behind you, though. Uh, no, 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 as I say, I'm at work. <laughs> sitting in a beer terrace. Uh, that's, that's where the beer comes from. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So obviously the situation we're in is, is quite unprecedented uh, in terms of how it's affecting uh, the whole economy. 
but obviously optics with the nature of the industry that it is it's going to take um it's, it's going to cause a lot of changes isn't it so what are your views on sort of short term and, and kind of the, the exit strategy and when restrictions start to lift how do you think that's going to pan out who, who do you want to go first any of you really just just jump in we're kind of already in place with um dr k patel one of my fantastic colleagues who's ip and i think nick i'm sure i'll have a lot to say about ip for now and the future but we're blessed that Kaya's ip deborah our other colleague uh, also fantastic and also very nearly ip so i think that we're going to be relying very heavily on their skill sets for the future um we're quite heavily invested in some PPE already. Uh, Kaya's going in fully protected as we speak. Um, and in the practice, although it's a house of Victorian practice and, and many have seen it in various images as you can see behind me, um, we share the premises with the dentist and we had a very interesting discussion, or Kaya had a discussion with them this morning when he went in to see a patient. And the PPE is available, it's just a matter of getting hold of it. And I know that there are various sources out there and I think um, if you follow our Facebook and Insta feed, we put a placement of uh, where you can get hold of it fairly recently. So uh, anybody struggling, there are opportunities to pull in the PPE. Um, I think it's an opportunity to look at what uniform we'll be looking at in the future. I mean, we've always tried to style ourselves pretty well, and the staff have had a uniform which has been branded. Now we may be going into scrubs it may be a golden opportunity for um, following in Phil Morgan's footsteps and wearing Crocs all day. I'm loving it. I'm not going <laughs> to de deny the thoughts when I get into practice again. But they're so comfy. It's sort of where they it's are comfy, comfy, but they are hideous as well. So it's, yeah. It's I, exactly agree. I, I think you can't go wrong with a pair. So I think um, we'll be prepared for what's to come. Uh, and there's so much else to prepare though, the waiting time, the appointments, the fee structure, the NHS involvement, etc. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done, but we're kind of already thinking through that. Yeah, yeah. What about, what about you Nicola or Nick? What kind of pre um, process have you got in place? What's your kind of plans? Well, I mean obviously at the moment we're just getting by um, staff are furloughed Oliver and I are manning the practice between us. So we're going in every other day um, between us. So he's in today, I'll be in tomorrow. Um, it gives you a good opportunity to have a good think about what we are going to do going forward, because no doubt things are going to have to change. I mean, if we're closed, like they're saying, possibly for four months, for me, that's 1200 eye tests that haven't happened. Um, so how are we going to see those people? Will those people still want to come and see us? Um, given that they might be a bit scared to even come out still, because you have to remember that a lot of our patients are elderly. Um, some of them, I have a huge diabetic, um, presence in my shop, lots of diabetic, um, people. So, um, that's going to be a challenge for us as well. Um, so I think it's just preparing for that. I mean, I've only got two testing rooms. Um, I do generally double test every day, um, but we're going to have to start thinking about staggering um, people coming in, appointments for collections, um, just appointments for everything, I think, so that we control the amount of people that we've got in our shop. Um, and again, yeah, PPE, um, what staff are going to need it, and making sure that that's all the correct 
PPE as well so that we protect them and our customers. So yeah, there's a lot to think about. Yeah, the PPE issue is a really interesting point, isn't it? Because it's it's another it's another cost to consider, isn't it, as well, in practice. You know, if you think how much PPE you're gonna use on an average day, if you're seeing, you know, fifteen patients a day on average, maybe something like that, fifteen to twenty. Yeah. Over yeah. a double clinic as well. So you're doubling that. So it's quite it's quite a lot of PPE to actually source and, and maintain stocks of, isn't it? So there is that extra cost to the business then. I don't know whether we can go back to that 15 or 20 a day process, certainly in the early return times, because yeah. I think there's got to be bigger gaps. I think there's a lot of talk on a lot of the forums about making an hour per patient. That brings in a massive connotation of whether you actually see a pure NHS patient. I mean, Nick and I run a similar fee model and we're very much kind of inclusive of everything for a reasonable fee. Uh, it's not the best it could be, but it's not bad. Uh, and if you're not running a fee structured practice and you aren't charging properly, it's going to be a real struggle going back and seeing an NHS patient with no further um, specialized examinations, etc. Um, so it's got to have some real thinking about timings. Yeah, definitely. So, so it's, I, I found it, it's, it's somewhat perversely, I think as a profession and as an industry, we have our problems, but we pale into nothing behind, for example, the care sector, uh, obviously. Um, and also, and my brother's a dentist, and, and the dent dental systems have really fallen to bits. So mm -hmm. I think we're in a slightly better position to come out the other end than, than many. Um, so what I tend to do is it's a sort of philosophical thing. I'm very much uh, a bottle of beer that's half full, not half empty. So what I tend to do is if there's something I can't do anything about, I don't worry about it. It doesn't bother me. If mm. it's something I've got influence over, then I will think about it. And perversely, I kind of enjoy making decisions. Um, and actually, I think that comes back to what your staff expect of you. So we came out very, very early on, around about the, uh, the 15th of March, um, and basically met with all of the staff and said, look, this is what we're going to do till, till the end of April. Um, we, we're going to be taking you right through at full salary. And then after that, we will see how, how it happens. And that was before furloughing schemes or whatever came out. Um, so I think Brian's point about how we, how we structure things, um, because we're a practice that relies a lot on automation and equipment, that actually lends itself to the theater of, of disinfection and cleanliness. Now in the past, we've used it as theater of, you know, look at the quality of examination that I can do, look at these retinal pictures, look at this, look at that. But here it's going to be, I'm not going to be using one of those dirty trial frames anymore. I'm going to be using this for Opto, which I can wipe down. Um, we're going to be using a lot, of, a lot of Optos, for example, we use pretty much all the time anyway. So that's easy to keep wiped down. Um, we're going to have to have a long, hard, cold look at visual fields because you can't clean a bowl. Um, and that is a real unpleasant environment. But there are systems. There's a system come out from Melbourne that uses an iPad uh, that does fields. So we've already got that. We're using it for domiciliaries. So we can move on with that. And then I think the other thing we need to look at is be a little bit more, more radical. Um, if we did our normal sums, we'd probably have about 45 eye exams a day 
and probably about 25 dispensing visits. So you're looking at, you know, the best part of, oh, what would it be? Um, 70 odd patient visits in a day. Um, yeah, so something like that. If you divide that into an eight hour day, you're looking at 10 and a half patients an hour. Um, and that's really gonna be very difficult to stratify. So we're looking generally at opening from maybe seven till seven um, and running two shifts. So we'll run seven till 11 and then we'll run 12 till seven. Um, and if we do that, and if we drop our numbers just a whisker, uh, what we'll find then is we're down to about five or six an hour. And five or six an hour when we've got two floors makes it viable. Um, dispensing, we are already the style of practice that you don't really browse in our practice. Um, we bring you the frames and we bring them already in it, like a jeweler's on, on, a, on a nice leather tray. Um, mm -hmm. And so you can see that they're going to be handled like, um, like a jeweler would with perhaps, perhaps cotton gloves to handle the frames, but then they all get cleaned before they go back. So we're going to be going out of our way to make a theater of disinfection, sterilization and cleanliness. Um, you know, it, it's almost like seeing members of staff walking around like your average OCD person with a little bit of cloth in their hand, wiping everything as they move around the building. Um, they're going to expect that as a minimum. Um, I think one of the other things we will do is we won't start off with, um, uh, with written recalls or with email recalls. I think we'll be phoning people one by one. Um, we're going to we're going to stratify by analysing our database and looking at well, okay, who are the high risk uh, eye disease clients that we need to see first? Number two, who are our high priority direct debit patients? Uh, we need to see them because they've hung on, and, and in many respects, you know, we're about probably like Brian, we're about twenty eight percent of our patient base pays by direct debit. Um, and they've, they've genuinely hung on. We've only lost two patients who've said, I'm not going to carry on paying my direct debit whilst you're unable to see me. We even had one patient um, email in to say, could she make a donation to make sure we were going to be there at the other end? And, and wow. I think that's just, <laughs> just a crazy <laughs> sort of situation. Um, so we'll be looking at, we'll be looking at them. Um, you know, we've got, terrific re relationships with our suppliers but i think we've kept that going by ringing them day one i came mm -hmm. home i was a fat asthmatic that had to be self-isolated so i just got on the phone and i started talking to everyone finance houses banks let everybody know what's going on do not sit there hoping a bill will go away engage engage all the yeah. time yeah definitely, definitely i think the suppliers problems are equally as big as, as the rest of us, really, in, in that sense, because they've still got bills to pay, they've still got, you know, customers to satisfy. And, and it's been interesting to see that, just, just sort of through various Facebook comments and things like that, people are sort of almost prioritising which suppliers they feel should be paid first and that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, you need these well, suppliers. Poor old J&J, &J, eh? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but some, some of, obviously, the bigger, like J&Js &J and all those kind of companies, they're obviously in a much better place to survive. But, you think a lot of these independent frame suppliers and you know the smaller suppliers, the smaller run businesses, they, they rely on, on on the practices as much as the practices rely on their support as well. So it's difficult to, to have to prioritise who you're actually going to pay next and what impact that's going to have on the industry. We've made it a rule that um, all small accounts are, are paid absolutely 100% up to date. Uh, you know, it might be someone like 
you know, a, a, a frame repair company, it might be a, a, a local deli, it might, you know, all of them have got to be paid straight away. And, and I think, Nicola, you're probably in a position of, of coming at it from a dispensing background. You're going to be talking to a lot of small suppliers, you know, just the odd two, three, four hundred pound bill every month. It's, it's going to be enough to keep them going and, and they yeah. might need it more than we need it. We've all got to come out of this the other side. We've got to come out of it together. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, so what, what were your thoughts on that then, Nicola? Is that something you'd agree with? Um, on the bill paying side of things, we've just settled up. We're part of Sitecare and NEG. Um, they offered us longer terms, um, but we've decided just to pay everybody. We know where we are um, and, and take it forward from there. Um, we've got um, we our biggest outlay is Optimap. We have um, we have Optimap. We've just signed another four year deal with them. Um, so they very kindly have wavered um, our three months and they're adding it onto our term, a bit like what mortgage companies are doing. Um, so that's good. So that's because we still need Optimap. Obviously, we're seeing um, essential eye care, so we we do need the Optimap, but obviously it's not. It's not getting covered, the bill for it. Um, so that was a great help. Um, but yeah, going forward, I, I really do feel sorry for some of the smaller frame companies. They're, you know, that it's some of them I deal personally with the people that own the business. Um, and they are they are going to struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually talking of frame companies, I know that a couple of uh, slightly bigger companies have actually laid off their reps. Uh, they're business development managers. Um, so a lot of the independent kind of salespeople that we would know and love and they come in and, you know, we all know we kind of then tend to deal with the personalities. So it'd be interesting if the same personalities are still around afterwards or whether they're jumping from the companies that are being more favorable. It's a really tough one for them as well. Um, but I, I agree with Nick about the dispensing. We, we similarly have always... For a long time, we didn't even have any frames on display at all. We've gone more to gallery style of late with the refurb a few years ago now. But um, we've always said, here is your tray. And we, we have uh, designed trays. It's not just when you're doing a, a, a spectacle fitting. Um, it's when you're uh, displaying to them in the first place, lay them out on a tray and say, look, we know these are going to work for you. And we know these are going to be the best option. And, and I think it's going to return a little bit more um to choosing the lens first because if we've worked out the prescription in whatever format we have um lens should be dictating the frame whether there'll be a, a drop in fashion thinking from that point of view is interesting yeah the other thing that was giving me some thought as well is um you know i i think people are going to come into in different categories nicola's already pointed out that a large proportion of our patient base are elderly. Um, so they're probably going to remain in isolation a little bit longer. So we, we're going to need to think about how we do, how we do manage that. Um, but I also think it's, um, it's, it's going to be a bit of a mix. You're going to have some people for whom, you know, they've been furloughed at low salary. They weren't able to get a, a, a mortgage holiday. Their finances have, uh, have, have really taken a hit. Um, and they're going to be they're going to be struggling with with mm. the dispensing and with the examination side of things, but on the other hand, um, if it's anything like you or I, where you know we've not been driving the car, it's sitting there with a full tank of petrol, um, 
and uh, you know we're 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 probably um, making more out of the cupboard than we are buying from the supermarket. We've actually got more disposable income, and I think people after two months out, three months out, they're going to want to treat themselves. Mm. They're going to want to feel good about themselves, and I think the other thing in terms of particularly spectacle frames. Um, is something that is high quality and fitting better that doesn't require continued adjustment uh, and pushing back on your nose and it retains fit. And there's no doubt that when you put a high quality frame on, the fit is generally better. Um, that actually lends us down the route of, well, you're not touching your face all the time. So I think part of the things that we've never, ever thought of in dispensing before will now become part and parcel of the conversation that, that we have. I think the, one of the key things is going to be, well, you know, we've always been very encouraging of the idea that you must have a second pair. We don't call them a spare pair. We call them a second pair. And one of the big things about the direct debit plans is that it encourages multiple dispensings. So we have, you know, so you had a pair last year. We'll have a pair this year. And those people who have not caused us any difficulty have been those who've always had, you know, a second pair, a backup pair of glasses. Having one dispensing is not going to be good and people who've broken their glasses and had one pair they're going to be the easiest sale to have two mm -hmm. so look at it on the positive there will be positives out of this yeah we've we've um stepped up a lot of the social media and um, on the website some of the blogs we've been doing of late one of them has been how to clean your spectacles properly and it involves a lot more washing so as nick said cleanliness of the frame in whatever fashion style uh, is important uh, but also the material is important that you can wash it. Obviously, some of the cheaper ones you couldn't possibly wash without getting things in places that shouldn't go. So the whole thing about uh, cleanliness and hygiene is going to be important. Yeah, definitely. I think disinfecting wipes, um, not all frames <laughs> take too kindly to be, uh, to be wiped down with disinfecting wipe, do they? So you run the risk of damaging coatings and stuff on the frames if they're not of a higher quality. So that is, that is a consideration. But again, if you, if you think the way that you're proposing to dispense and the way you currently dispense by selecting frames for the patient, bringing them to the patient, at least then you've got control over what's been touched. Whereas you can imagine, in, I mean, I've worked in huge multiples, 12 test room kind of multiples, where you can have 30 or 40 people on the shop floor at once picking up frames and handling them and stuff like that. So that's going to be really difficult to manage, you know, going forward if, 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 if they have it in their mind to manage it that way. So and it looks like a... It looks like a bomb ticket then on a Saturday afternoon when uh, you've had every day. people in, <laughs> in the last hour. Okay. Yeah. Nick, you, you, you raised an interesting point there, which is about patient welfare. So in Scotland, the, the, um, the government uh, in Scotland has closed all of optometric practices. They've required them to close. Um, and all of the um, primary care is now being carried out in hospitals. So they've got designated kind of centres that people can go to if they've got an eye problem rather than visiting their local practice. And I was on a, an ophthalmology webinar last week and, and they were saying that, that they'd expected that they would be really busy um, with primary eye care issues and they're not. And they saw that as a good thing. And I actually saw that as a bad thing. And I raised the question and said, yeah, but where have all these people gone? Where have all these eye emergencies and the urgent things gone? What, what's happening to them? They're, they're not seeing anybody. So what, what do you think we can do to encourage people back? I mean, as, as you said, a lot of people are elderly, diabetes, they've got comorbidities. 
but they've got an eye problem. You know, how can we how can we encourage them that it is safe to come and to come and visit us? I think just be available. I mean, that's where our message has been. <clears throat> we may have closed door at the minute, but the phones being manned. We've got a non-furloughed staff member doing that the whole time. We've had all the social media and uh, the um, emergency contact information. And we've seen, I think, two retinal detachments, two ulcers, and a couple of stroke victims. So they're coming into us because they, we've always had a really close communication capability with our patients. And, you know, all practices do, um, but it's down to trust, um, down to uh, belief in the practice. Um, and I think going back a step before this question came out, Peter, there was a, a little bit about um, Stuart, because I think you have a, a, a multiple kind of background. Um, the terminology has been test and shop floor. Nick and I don't use that terminology. We've always put forward a really clinical thinking practice with examinations and, you know, specs are fitted. They're not just collected. And I think it's all about saying this is the kind of professionalism that we run within the whole of optometry language needs to change and if the language changes then the public's perception of what we can do and how we can do it and how well we can do it will change and therefore people will come to us understanding that we should be the first port of call for any ocular eye emergency kind of problem yeah yeah no i'd, I'd agree i'd agree i think this is where your IP optons come to the forefront in this kind of situation where I think the industry has been, been crying out for a long time to be recognised in more of a clinical sense um, rather yeah, than on the retail side. I'm not IP, but nevertheless, you still put forward that clinical think uh, rather than yeah. kind of just pure sales. And that's where the we're only here to sell spectacles kind of problem can come from. Yeah, Do you think you are seeing all of the ocular emergencies and issues that would arise. I mean, in terms of uh, number of referrals, you know, I, I know you've seen some, some people with uh, some really kind of outstanding um, big issues like retinal detachment, but what about all of the, you know, the people who come along and, you know, they've got little problems and they end up referring them. Are we, are we seeing those or are they just kind of putting up well, with it? We've got some fairly hard data on this now that's been run locally. Um, we're, we're sharing the, um, the emergency cover between ourselves and, and our local spec savers. And I have to say our local spec savers has been very good. I, I'm not so comfortable with the big group, but, but locally the guy chairs our LOC. He's, he's an excellent, uh, excellent practitioner. Um, and just backing, backing up one step to what you've said about Scotland. Um, I think sometimes we can be guilty of thinking that somebody else's grass is greener on the other side. Now, we've been given the opportunity to carry on running this emergency and essential service through our practices, through those practices that have remained open, like Nicola's, Brian's, et cetera, and, and our local teams. We haven't been obliged to move into some corporatist type of approach um, that they have in Scotland. So, so I think that's an advantage for us being able to, to bounce back. Um, we have been seeing those emergency patients. So in, in the gap between, say, 24th of March, the 15th of, um, of April, there were uh, just about 90 presentations to us. Um, and then the majority of them, 70% were self-presentation, 12% were from the GP, 5% came in from casualty. They were directed to us. Um, 
everything was was basically re related around well what were your presenting symptoms so it was all dealt with by phone um but we still needed to see a number of people had to attend um face to face so we actually saw uh, out of that telephone group um I think 73% were actually had to be seen face to face. So it's about 65 patients were seen face to face and they had some serious problems. You know, we did have um, a couple of retinal tears. We have had um, herpes simplex, keratitis, acanthamoeba, et cetera. So that they are out there. Um, I think there's probably been a little bit less of the um, recurrent scratchy dry eye that didn't listen to the instructions they were given the last time we saw them. Uh, that's probably true. Um, but, you know, I think go, going forward, we, you know, we, we have a position to make, to make quite a difference and we've, we've done it reasonably well. Um, but I would say it was a lot of individual practices moved faster and quicker than the professional bodies did. Some of them did. The, the, the college and the GOC moved quickly on remote dispensing um, and being able to redispense someone who'd broken their glasses or how you might manage a contact lens aftercare. Um, but as soon as we got into the, the negotiation with, with the NHS between AOP, FODO, fees negotiation, LOCSU, etc., that was pretty turgid listening to, 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 to really where we got out at the other end. Um, but th those patients, they're, they're definitely out there. And I can tell you, they do not belong um, in the GP. They do not belong in pharmacy. And they, they do not, 80% of patients do not belong in ophthalmic casualty. A&E casualty for ophthalmology is grossly <laughs> overpresented by patients who could be managed in, in our sector. And we're going to have to. Because if we're thinking about how we ramp up <laughs> to see the patients that are wanting to see us, how on earth is ophthalmology going to ramp up to catch up on three months of cataract waiting lists, three months of TRABs, three months of glaucoma assessments? They're not going to be able to do it. They can't do it. We have to do that. So anything that's been set up has to be running on an ongoing basis. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like I say, I mean, even Nicola mentioned she's going to have approximately 1,200 patients to catch up on. So you can imagine the strain with cataracts, etc. the ophthalmologists are going to be playing catch up on. Do you feel that in a way, because um, some practices are, are much better equipped than others to deal with those kind of referrals, that, that obviously the stuff that would be managed in practice in some practices is often referred from other practices. So does that mean that we need some kind of second tier almost where those practices refer to your IP prescribers, those kind of things, or does it need to be really, does the whole system need restructuring in a way? Along, is, along with the GOS funding to go along with that. I can in a perfect world, I think there's been, in a perfect world, I think there's been a, a, a differentiation of practices for a period of time. There are the kind of those high street, wherever your placement is, um, not really that highly equipped working off principles of uh, examination going back a time and then there have been some for example like ourselves and nick etc i don't know nicholas practice so i can't say kind of levels of technology but um working with the equipment and the skill set and the educational levels for dry eye clinics and for um, glaucoma clinics and lots of the other factors that are involved and i think there's going to be that differentiation in the future um, and 
those of us that have got that capability now obviously have a, a head start and a lot may be trying to play catch up, which may be a lot harder for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I'm not so sure. I mean, equipment is important and instrumentation is important, but I think, I think it's a culture. I, th I think it's a, it's a mindset. Um, and if you look at the regulations, um, then back in 2000, the regulations changed that removed the obligation on an optometrist to have to refer a disease process. And actually for a, for a DO at the same time, you could see somebody make, make a call on what it is and hang on to it. Um, and that's actually the culture set that we need to move into, not being able to refer something. Now, I saw something on LinkedIn yesterday, and it, and it was a, 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 you know, no names, no pack drill, but it was a, an OCT scan of, of somebody's retina, somebody had approached the practice, their vision was a little bit blurry in one eye, they'd had an OCT scan, and the practice was making the comment that because they'd got this OCT, they could recognize uh, an epiretinal membrane, and they were able to refer it on to ophthalmology. And my point was, what for? Why? There's no treatment. It's not a sight-threatening condition. It's something that can be observed and monitored. And so the technology has come in ahead of the culture shift in how you change your outlook. So my view is very much along the lines of if, if we see somebody and we identify something, what is the outcome going to be following that referral? I mean, nobody now refers in people with early stage cataract if they're not symptomatic and need it doing. Um, many of us don't refer in people who are ocular hypertensives for a, a similar reason. Um, you have to be prepared to actually take a decision and perhaps monitor something, perhaps not refer. So one of the culture shifts that's got to happen is the indemnity bodies um, those who provide us with indemnity have, have got to stop waving the red flag that you're going to be struck off if you miss this or don't do that or fail to do the other. You refer in what's appropriate and you don't otherwise. Once you've made that culture shift, the next step of moving into more appropriate MEX management or even going on to IP and full-on treatment is easy. That bit's easy. But that initial culture shift is tough. Um, and, and I know it's, it, it's, it's even tougher for practices where, I mean, Nicola's lucky like us, you've got multiple consulting rooms. So you, if you're double testing, you're going to have one optom can ask the other an opinion. So I always fear for the guys that practice like my dad did on his own for 40 years, never anybody to ask a question of that. It's really hard to change that, that culture. Yeah, and I think I think uh, as Nick said, the uh, the advantage of the technology and the uh, the working with the greater levels of information diagnostic knowledge is to avoid referral on exactly that point. Uh, and I'm blessed with uh, colleagues in my practice. We have a really open discussion clinical forum, and um, with a long uh, history of working with Nick and his team, um, you know, we kind of share all our thinking and. Um, many other independent practices around the country we've, we've got kind of like big groups and we'll share cases and share um, techniques and advantages somebody's always got a better idea than we have yeah. I mean what what's happening on the Wirral at the moment is that we've all been split up into hubs for north south east and west 
and we take it in turns to be primary or secondary herb on a given day. Um, and then when people present, we telephone triage. Um, and then if we have to get them into practice, we do. But then we're very lucky in that we have um, ophthalmologists and um, optometrists from the eye department in our WhatsApp group um, and via nhs.net so that we can email them stuff and they can give us their opinion on things without us having to send the customer the uh, the patient to them so that's been something that's been really positive that's come out of this and that's, yeah. that's another fantastic element of of hopefully what will come out is a, a greater level of cooperation with ophthalmology uh, nick's got it we've got it locally nicola's obviously got it but there are some practices who seem to not be blessed with ophthalmologists with more forward thinking, but maybe this will change things. I think it still is the exception rather than the rule, isn't it? So Nicola, I think you were saying that that virtual clinic has been set up as a response to, to the coronavirus epidemic. And I think, you know, there, there are places and, you know, I, I'm based in Edinburgh and there are quite a number of places in Scotland now have got virtual clinics and can share information. And, and that's really important, isn't it? So sharing sharing an opinion and saying, what do you think this is? Do you think, do you want to see this or not really? Yeah. Also then finding out what happened to them afterwards. Because yeah. you can't be confident in monitoring a patient until you know, you know, from a few similar patients, what their outcome was and did, did they need treatment or not. So one of the other things we've done in this downtime is uh, one of our optoms who's um, not furloughed and who's not IP qualified. She's working with the IP colleagues in the practice on her alternate skeletal days. And she's been working through our electronic patient record templates. So for example, we've now added a, a line in our general exam, which was, it basically says, um, optometrist requested second opinion of fellow optometrist yes no and who did it and then patient referred for a telemedicine consult now this isn't a concept that i think british optometry's really got to grips with but we have a focus on it's either our patient or it's referred if you refer the legal situation is you're passing responsibility on to the next person that collects that referral but there is another terminology and that's a consult so I'm passing on this information for a consult with you. Now that might be electronically telemedicine. I might ring you up. Could the WhatsApp group? There's lots of different ways of doing it. I'm not passing on responsibility for the management of that patient. I'm just asking your supportive information, and then I draw that back in, and then I make my decision. And, and I don't think that concept really existed very much before we use it quite a lot particularly with vitreoretinal stuff and things like the um you know interpretation of peripheral lesions that you don't see very often um and i'm sure you know nicola's experience with the optos and the optomap would have been similar you see things and you think well do they want to see that or don't they mm -hmm. so the important thing is not necessarily to assume that you're going to make a referral but that you're going to make a consult now, one of the other elements, uh, technically, that's coming, becoming available is, um, is, is the, the ability to integrate uh, clinical records. So, for example, I'm afraid I have to mention a name now, but Topcon have a system that was bought off a, a Finnish company about two years ago called Harmony. Now, Harmony is a cloud-based platform that enables you to upload 
um, the raw DICOM images from OCTs and Optos, um, your PDFs, your JPEGs, your whatever. Um, and so all you would do is send the login details to the receiving consultant who would log into Harmony and be able to look at that entire record. And they're effectively looking at your, your actual notes. So it's much better, particularly for the video of OCT, it's much better than just sending one single scan JPEG or something of that nature. And, and then you can report back within that and that can be widened out. So it can be widened out to be LOC wide. And in fact, Harmony is looking at going um, principality wide through Wales um, as, as, as a common platform for the management of it, the interface between community and, 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 and secondary eye care. And, and I think these things are all really positive. You know, we could be seeing a big improvement in, in how, we, how we communicate. One of the very, very early things that happened in this whole crisis was that the, the NHS um, suddenly decided that its attitude to information governance was going to be opened. And instead of having everything done under, you know, you've got to be CRB tested or you've got to be this or you've got to be that, it all became out what's in it for the patient. You know, can we transfer this information seamlessly? If you go back two, three years ago, the AOP was saying you shouldn't communicate with your patients over Facebook. You know, that, that you shouldn't communicate them through, with them through social media. Well, I'm afraid we do, we did. And the NHS has now said, it's okay to do that. I mean, it's any communication vehicle and uh, Harmony has the beauty of having virtually any OCT, any uh, information gathering. So it's, it's, a, it's like a, a global hub for all data. And Stuart, you work closely with the AOS guys and they're um, really rising up to the challenge because the AOS software, as you well know, is um, capable of uh, even the patient taking their own image. So that's open to the video, uh, telemedicine, consult, remote consult. And we've done quite a few had quite a few patients sending in um, their images of their red eye from a contact lens or from a non-contact lens scenario. And, you know, it doesn't take us much to judge that uh, a, a, a sectoral redness is different to an overall redness and a, a watery looking eye rather than a pussy eye. So we can diagnose over a lot of the technology that's around there. Um, AOS, I know, um, are uh, moving forward and they're going to do some extra work on uh, their software. So, you know, that's another one to be watching out for. It's another one where we can share again with ophthalmologists accordingly. Yeah, definitely. I think having the, having the ability just to share information and have that collective brain amongst, you know, professionals is one thing. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And I think we've always had this, this kind of attitude within the industry where we like to share knowledge. We like to teach each other as well. I mean, you certainly see it at CET with peer discussions and discussion workshops. But even coming through the educational process, you know, from a DO perspective, you have a supervisor. But if you're a pre-reg, you have a supervisor. You learn off people in practice and you go through that kind of, a, kind of like an apprenticeship almost, don't you, in that sense? And it is that learning off each other that, that sort of progresses the, uh, the industry forward. Definitely. Any and every aspect of um, inter-helping our, our own patients. Um, you know, some of our patients are not local. So we're very happy ringing up somebody local to say look this patient's got an issue can you deal with it either a spectacle or an eye issue that, that mm -hmm. may be there and you know we've just re um kind of connected with a local practice got their own glazing lab 
so we can ultimately we've always done remote edging and all sorts of things for a long time now but patients are going to want something a bit more instant sometimes so helping each other because he's got to make money the same as we all have yeah definitely i think i think sometimes you can almost look at other practices as, as not the enemy but the competition certainly and, and you know you don't really want to risk losing the patient to another practice but sometimes it, you've got to do what's in the best interest yeah. of the patient so if, if that practice offers something that you can't offer yeah and that patient will appreciate the fact that you've put them in the right direction and if that's a reciprocal agreement that you've got with the other practice it can only be better for both of you in the long term really well, one of the things i, I very <laughs> good technical cough there peter into the elbow i noticed that <laughs> One of the things I, I rarely do is, um, is, is quote Doug Perkins. Um, but something he said many, many years ago was about competition and that your competition isn't necessarily the next optometrist, but your competition is the hairdresser, the florist, the shoe shop, as much as anything else. Um, so we do have to, I think, look at our our colleagues as colleagues we have to look at this as an, in a much more collegiate way and we have we've worked very closely with our with our multiple cousins in in our town um not to anybody's detriment and i think the profession is uh maturing it, it was a, a relatively naive profession at one stage but it's maturing and so you you are prepared to refer somebody to somebody else in the knowledge that ethically they'll they'll return them to you we treat somebody with ip but we're not going to be their next provider of spectacles necessarily i mean they, that's up to them it's their choice um and the same thing happens in terms of spectacle dispensing it also happens in terms of contact lens practice that that we see people um perhaps um you know we're, we're a little bit more supportive of of other more appreciative of other people's positions perhaps mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Do you, do you feel that there may be um, a temptation when when this kind of, when restrictions are lifted? And obviously, we're talking about backlog of appointments and all the measures that you want to put in place to, you know, limit the amount of patients in your practice at a certain time, so you can still maintain that you know, high hygiene standards and have longer to clean between each patient and more social distances in practice. Do you think there's going to be an element of of some practices who are going to think? I've just spent the last three or four months taking next to no sales. And now I've got all these people who can't go to the practices. Do you think there's going to be an element of almost greed or that, that temptation to claw back those last, last sales and, and lower those hygiene standards? Uh, I, I think there'll be two things. I think there will be that. And I think there will also be people wanting to big up what they think they've done um, mm. to the detriment of everybody else. And, and I think we're, we're seeing that already. Um, and it's somewhat disappointing. Um, I, I like to see um, the social media posts that suggest how this is a good thing for patients in terms of how optometry behaves, not how in terms of one particular person or group behaves. Um, I think that's a, that's a really important consideration. Um, so going forward, I don't want to see uh, signs of somebody making a bid for example um, collecting up all of the the cues and necks that we can do that for you look what a good job we did um, you know in that terrible downtime 
um, I think that would be absolutely counterproductive and would go a long way to undermining the trust that's actually built up in this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Not mentioning any names. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a worry. It is a worry, and I think I think attitudes have changed quite a bit since this since the lockdown started. Because I think, from, from my perspective as a local, when, when the lockdown was kind of announced, or when it was building up to being announced, I was working. My, my main background has always been um, multiples, but since I've been local, I've done mainly independent practices, and. I think a lot of locums were kind of worried that obviously work was going to dry up, but then it seemed to be the attitude that, well, when we come out the other side, we're going to be busy. There's going to be a big demand and we're going to be a lot busier. But I think there's been a bit of a shift in that now, whereas people are thinking, actually, do we want to be that busy? Do we, do we want to be rushing back to the way we were and, and taking on that big sort of volume again? So I don't know. It's, it's, it's changed so quite a lot. Can I ask Nicola a question? Yeah. If you, if you had a magic wand going forward, if you got sort of three wishes that you could um, magic away or change or whatever that would really make you feel comfortable going forward, something that, that you, you've been looking forward to being able to do but haven't in the past? Mm, I think... The, the main thing I wish would happen in optics is that we'd get paid a fair fee for our site testing. And that way we wouldn't need to see the patients at such a high volume. Not that we do. We, we run a 40 minute clinic. Um, so um, my husband is, is quite clinical. He likes to take his time with patients. And then from that, then we offer good recommendations. Um, so we're not the type of practice that, wax them in and wax them out every 20 minutes and that's not the way we want to go so yeah a fair amount for the the site testing fee would be good um because it is a loss leader and and you can't survive on site testing alone um so that would probably be top of my wish list if you like um I don't know the other two wishes I don't know I just want to get back to what I do best and that's selling selling and chatting to people and just and and just helping my customers again i just um i just miss yeah. that that element of it really yeah we all do. Brian, Brian what are your wishes you know what i'm actually quite enjoying this kind of being at home sorting out it's almost like early retirement for me but no, <laughs> I'm not retiring <laughs> I'm well past the age, but no, I'm not going anywhere. Sorry, team. Sorry, direct fellow directors. Sorry, patients. I'm still around. Um, it's been useful. I, I've never been so busy in lecturing. Honestly, I've got three I've done to various parts of the world so far. I've got another one tomorrow. I've got another one next week, and I've just been asked to do another one. So I've spent all my time doing writing for talks and things along those lines. So it's been a bit mad crazy. Um, as a wish, I, I just think that I'd like to get back to seeing the patients just as Nicola you know we survive on social interaction this is another form of social interaction but it's not as big as a hug it's not the same as a proper hug you know we just really want to get in there and say to our patients look we're here we're here for you when we can Uh, but I just think it's going to be a long time before we can do hugs with patients again now you're going to have to social distance from your coffee machine Brian 
Uh, no, well, we kind of can do that by just literally one member of staff disinfecting and serving the coffee. So, Paper cup, that's the way forward, isn't yeah. it? So I have, a, I, have a, I have a couple of wishes. Um, and one of my wishes is, I think, um, and, and this, is, this is bedeviled optometry and dispensing optics for years, okay? Um, I think we need to be able to speak with one voice. I think as what's happened in optometry Northern Ireland, optometry Wales, optometry Scotland, is there is one voice for the government to talk to. This one, we kind of got there through LOCSU and the Fees Negotiating Committee acting as the voice with FODO and the AOP pushing in from the side and, and obviously providing personnel and income uh, and input, etc. But my feeling is that FODO, AOP, LOCSU, primary eye care services, everything to do with the negotiation side of things should merge as one voice, one single voice. And that one single voice would talk to the employed optometry optical czar who would be based in Richmond House in London, so that instead of the desk that looks after general ophthalmic services being shared with someone that partly looks after dentistry as well, we have a single line of communication. Because I think that divide and rule has been used to divide us. It's been used to divide optometry from ophthalmology. It's been used to divide optometry from dispensing optics. There's no division. There's no division there. You know, the best practices in the world are team practices between optometrists and dispensing opticians. We need to have one voice and come together in that way, because I think ultimately that will see us coming out at the other end where GOS will either survive or wither, but a newer needs-based approach that will incorporate what you can deliver in, in primary care with IP bolted on the back of it. A little bit like Scotland, but a little bit more in our control. But as it stands at the moment, we don't have that single voice. If you talk to somebody in the Department of Health, they don't know who to talk to they can't have that negotiation on a regular basis. And that also then knocks through to things like the educational strategic review. Just what level of expertise do you expect an optometrist to have at entry level? Because I can tell you entry level hasn't changed in 30 years. Um, and yet what we're being asked and expected to do, that culture argument that I made before, um, we haven't caught up with that. We need to catch up with that. So that education review has got to put everybody on a different on a different level and it will lift the DOs up into doing the jobs that they can do as, as CLOs and in supporting our, our MEX programs, etc. This, this whole thing moves together. We should just make it a little bit more seamless. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think going forward, there needs to be that shifting culture, like you mentioned before, with going from that detect and refer kind of mentality. Um, one phrase, that you hear all too often sometimes is is cover your own back when it comes to referrals better refer but you know just just to be on the safe side cover my own back kind of thing and that that actually needs to change but like i said i think the entry level of when people are coming out of optometry school when people are coming out of dispensing opticians training it needs to be in in a way where, where they're comfortable and confident to take on those kind of things um we we had a canadian optom on um on our first episode Who's, who's a friend of mine who studied at Aston. And then when she converted to her Canadian qualification, the main difference was the prescribing element. 
Uh, and, she, and she's very much of the opinion that that should be incorporated into, into the UK optometry degree. Um, so people are coming out with that, that level of understanding. Whether that means that the course needs extending slightly or a longer pre-reg, I'm, I'm not sure how it would work, but just to have that slightly elevated um, clinical aspect to it would, would help out the industry. Um, um, Nick and I both have, for the last five or six years now, Nick, I yeah, think, five years. Shared, shared students from Melbourne and Sydney. We have sort of, well, we, we have had for the last few years, obviously not this year because they've cancelled out, understandably, but we've had two Melbourne and two Sydney students. They do a five-year course and they're mm -hmm. auto-prescribing um, right from the word go. And they're super smart when they're coming out. So unless there was a massive university change, then that whole uh, prescribing option isn't going to happen. That The students, bless them, have got barely enough knowledge about contact lenses when they come out of uni. So to add in prescribing and all the other factors, I think would be a bridge too far within a three-year course. It's just never going to happen. Yeah, it would, it would need to be a longer course, wouldn't it? But I'm surprised nobody's, nobody's done it yet. I mean, there are so many universities now offering optometry courses, but I'm surprised somebody hasn't just differentiated themselves by saying let's let's offer a therapeutic optometry course i mean every every time i look at a new course opening in in you know huddersfield or chalfont st giles or lancashire or university of west england or wherever it comes up not a single one has ever done anything any different uh, is not presenting any level of differentiation um but i don't know that it is insurmountable because I'll give you an example. Um, my daughter's a first response paramedic in, in London. So she's been right at the front end uh, from the word go. Um, and actually, we got a lot of our prior information on what was coming down the line about 10 days ahead of what, what happened to us. So that was really, really helpful. But her course was interesting because it was a degree course in paramedic science. But they basically did in their first year nine weeks uni, five weeks placement in the LAS, then nine weeks, then five weeks. In the three-year degree that she did, she had 42 weeks contact time out of 52, whereas your average three-year degree is about 24 to 26 weeks contact time. By the time they moved into year two, there were nine weeks placement, five weeks uni. So by the time they came out at the end of the third year, um, they'd been pretty much working near full time. And if you look at the Canadian students and the Australian students, they might do the university degree first year and second year very similarly to where we go. But as they start third year, their contact time is no longer 26 weeks and then a pre-reg. Their contact time is more like 42 weeks for the next two years. And that next two years is a mixture of different different placements. So at the end of their, it's five years in Melbourne, but at the end of a of a four-year course, a four-year OD, they're coming out with those qualifications. So we are approaching it in a typical British way of how would we adapt what we've got to get to where we're going to go? Well, actually, you could do things differently. Um, so I think you could build in all of the appropriate IP didactic learning within the normal program and all you would do is at the end of your fourth year you would just roll into an additional placement and then you'd come out at the other end but it, it pains me to think all the work that was done and, and I was involved in it from about 2001 to 2013 in establishing the GOC regs around IP um, 
every single other jurisdiction in the world, as Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, as soon as it became legal and appropriate to get IP qualification at entry point, within one to two years, every single university was turning every graduate at that level. We got independent prescribing in 2008. We're 12 years on. And we need it more than they need it because we've got fewer ophthalmologists in the UK than any other country in Europe on a per capita basis. So how come we haven't been able to move on that? I just, it just defies belief to me. Uh, I, I think this will have shown if we'd approached this crisis with 1,500 IP qualified practitioners, not 500, it, the argument would be dead and buried. But we came into it too late with too few. Yeah. So there's your wish list. That's my wish list. <laughs> In a nutshell. That, that's going to be the new normal. I tell you what we've not talked about is just staff welfare. So we've talked about patients a lot. What, what are you guys uh, with practices doing about staff welfare? I mean, Nick, you, you already mentioned that you'd kept people on that full salary till the end of April, but are you doing anything to support them in terms of, you know, the, the new uh, adapting to the new normal working from home, the stress of dealing with patients, you know, to wear PPE and all of that. Cake. <laughs> yeah. Um, talking, talking to them, the, the, the guys that are furloughing are helping out as much as the people that are working on a skeleton basis. Um, so we've got a, um, it's a two weekly quiz that we do um, that, that rotates around. We're staying in communication. We've got people picking things up, dropping things off, collecting things for people. Um, we've had a 40th birthday from someone who started with us as a 17 year old school leaver. Um, and, and that is just gives some degree of continuity that I'm sure Nicola and Brian's practices are very similar. People come to us and stay for a long time. So it's keeping always keeping in touch, listening to them, talking to them um, and, and getting cake delivered. We've got a little bakery that has stopped working, but is now doing home delivery. So we've had deliveries of croissants and uh, pastries into the practice with the people that are working. Um, things like that. Simple stuff. Definitely stopping in touch has been crucial. And, you know, with four directors, we're forever um, chatting, talking, phoning, etc., and just making sure uh, every single patient needs has different needs. And so any contact normally needs the dispensing uh, side of things and the clinical side and then the admin of getting products out to them, etc. Um, my son, uh, some of you guys know, is a, is a chef, award-winning chef locally, and he's now in the process of sorting out uh, food for heroes. He's doing... Uh, Three, 350 meals a day based at the Old Thorpe Kitchen where he's head chef um, and he's pushing out and one or two of the guys um, of the team are helping him because they're volunteering just to go in there and help. So um, every aspect of charity work, every aspect of um, keeping them busy and their minds busy is a good thing. We tried a quiz. They weren't so keen. So we'll, we, we try, we'll, have a, we'll have a gin evening instead. It'll be much more successful, I think. <laughs> yeah I think for me it was just a matter of keeping our staff safe I've got um a staff member who has got a husband at home that isn't very well so um the question of of keeping the staff in work didn't sit well with me or Ollie so um yeah they've they're they're at home on full pay and, and I know that they're safe there so that's fine um when we do reopen will I 
will some of the older members want to come back? I just don't know, to be honest. And that would be their decision. Um, because can I promise <coughs> them safe? I, d I don't know that I can. I don't know. Mm, yeah, it's a big consideration to make, isn't it? And you think a lot of practice, especially the larger practices, if they are having to scale back in terms of the amount of people that they see, are they going to rely on the, the volume of staff that they need? Are they going to need all those staff members to begin with? So that's always a danger as well, isn't it? Coming out of this? That, that's a tough one. When, when we went through the last financial crisis, um, you know, the 2008-2009 one, I think we went through probably 18 months to two years. If anybody left, we didn't replace anyone at all. Um, and we concentrated absolutely unashamedly on the net profit line, the very bottom line of the business. Um, so it was very tight control of, of overheads, doing what we can on the, uh, on, on the sales and product side. Don't be afraid to put your prices up if you need to do that. Um, but protect above all protect your cash is the thing um, this is the old phrase that sales are san sales are vanity profit is sanity but cash is king and you can be getting yourself into a profitable mode but you're not recouping any cash and if you don't recoup cash you can go back to work and find that the business runs away with you so so key things are you know High levels of deposit when people are placing orders. Um, make sure if you've got the opportunity to pay up front, pay up front, get them to pay up front. Um, you've got to protect your cash base more than anything else. And don't worry about the sales top line. Worry about the bottom line and the cash in the bank because that's how you're going to keep your business afloat. So if somebody leaves, you know, it may be their choice. Uh, we're not about to ask anybody to go. We don't need to do that. But if somebody leaves, we would probably take stock and say, well, actually, is there another way of doing things? I'll give you another example. We've moved away from an employed bookkeeper running a set of Sage accounts to outsourced bookkeeping running a set of zero accounts as a different accounts package. Um, and we think that's again moving into a different sort of technology um, where you can scan invoices into the system and they're automatically posted into into zero where, where it's live on your bank account um, I, I just think we need to grow up a bit as business people as well um, take this as an opportunity to get set up yeah yeah I think, I think the business element's a big one isn't it because I think when you consider most you know, opticians um, Opticians are opticians, aren't they? They're, they're optometrists and dispensing opticians. They're not necessarily business people. So going into, into a business where there's so much to consider, it's, it's a big learning curve, isn't it? And I think having that, that business background, having an understanding of all that kind of stuff is, is going to be important going forward. Who does oh, your yeah. books, Nicola? My husband does the books. Does he? He does. Okay. Good for him. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Zero, though. Nick, I mean, yeah. um, zero is, and we've been using that now for, I don't know, five or six years, probably. It's so, so much better than, than what Sage was offering then. Obviously, I don't know if they've improved. Then. Not, not noticeably. And I, my separate consultancy business, we're running through, through zero as well. It's, it's amazing how what's come out of New Zealand has been so good in this crisis. The New Zealand PM 
is is my kind of almost superhero. You know, I would I would follow her to the ends of the earth. I think she's mad <laughs> great. Um, she's excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, she has done a great job over there. I have to give her full credit for that. So, yeah. Well, there's a lot of flu in the sheep. That's the only thing. You have to watch out for that. <laughs> <laughs> that is the bulk of the population though isn't it so <laughs> <Careful>. <laughs> and, and i was going to ask nicola as well so what uh what what's going to happen with the football season because you're in the Wirral there are you, you know, is liverpool going to going to win or are you an everton supporter we're newcastle in our house oh right okay so he wants he wants whatever's going to happen to happen because they're being bought out aren't they oh crumbs okay so you're you're two army up there yeah, Toonami. He's from Newcastle. So, um, You're not from my, Newcastle? I'm not from Newcastle. I'm from South Wales. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I worked in Bristol for six years um, and then moved up here in 2001. So I lived in Liverpool for 10 years. So, so your, your heart's with mine in the, the proper game with the, the proper shaped ball. Yeah. Yeah. And we <laughs> yeah. want to see an end to this uh, Six Nations. Yeah, we go. I'm going to say, well. Will the Six Nations ever end? And, and I was supposed to be at the Formula One this weekend, but that's not happening either. Uh, okay. That's the way see, it goes. From, from my perspective, because I'm an Aston Villa fan, so I'd like the season voided so we avoid <laughs> relegation. And also, it'd be nice to see West Brom not get promoted as well. So. Oh, my God. West Brom was my team. <laughs> well, I'm a Dud- you see, when you grow up in Dudley, you're either West Brom or you're Wolves. And you had a couple of outliers that went to Aston Villa. No one supported Birmingham City. No, of course not. I've, um, <laughs> has football got into esports? I mean, I've, I've been watching a few kind of virtual Formula One things, and they, they did the, um, the, the E-Prix, the Formula E. They did that as a, as a virtual Grand Prix with all of the real drivers in their real cars. Oh, no, they've, they've had um, Wolves beat Liverpool at, um, at FIFA uh, yeah. I, I, on an IT game. And, and, and did they have the real, some of the real players actually play in the game? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, isn't it? I think, I think the Wolves player. Do more of that. They, um, they the had their Grand, free. Free. The Grand National, didn't they? So that was all virtual as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a guy writing the Telegraph two days ago about how he dug his Sabutio out of the loft. Um, <laughs> so Nicola's too young to remember Sabutio. And so are you, Stuart. I used to have Sabutio. Did I you? know what Sabutio is, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> so there you go. Stay so, yeah. at home rocks. <laughs> it does, definitely. So the, the reason for this background is on the 7th of July, I should be flying to Cape Town to do a seminar down there and then follow it with four-day safari in Namibia. Um, and it ain't going to happen. It'll be next year just about round about the time the lions go to south africa <laughs> funny that <laughs> what a time it well yeah. <laughs> definitely so i think we've pretty much touched on everything we we're going to cover today so it's been really interesting i think we've covered quite a lot of stuff that we weren't planning on covering which has been really interesting too in regards to educational changes and stuff like that so so yes yeah, so thanks for everyone for taking part is there any final thoughts from anyone no, uh, I just wish everybody uh, health for themselves and their businesses for the future. And um, yeah, just keep those gloves on. And if you've got to have gloves, I think the only way is to go black. It's the, the kind of the coolest way to do it. <laughs> like the tattoos. 
So I would, I would say just make sure everybody in you and your family stays safe. We've, we've got a little uh, four and a half year old in our family up in, up in Scotland who's um, having to go backwards forwards for chemo because of a leukemia. And, and the, the whole social distancing around that takes on a new, a new area of seriousness. Um, so please stay safe, but also please stay positive. We don't gain anything by being um, negative and worrying about things you can't do anything about. Um, but what you can control, um, make your decisions and run, run with it. Yeah, definitely. And Nicola? Yeah, just stay safe, everybody. And then um, just just look after everybody else, isn't it, as well? That's what I've tried to do. Yeah. And the, the only thing that when Stuart ends the meeting in a minute, remember to retain that smiley face just right to the end of the video link. <laughs> I don't do this other arm, I'm turning away now. Everybody's resting bitch face will show and it's just really not a good thing. Not a good <laughs> I'm going I'm to tell you I'll stop recording, but I might keep it going for a few seconds after. So we'll see. I'm there. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so thank you everyone. I'll, I will stop recording now. So Brian, if you get that resting bitch face ready. <laughs> <laughs> thank you everyone. We'll see you all again soon. Okay. Yeah. Don't pull your shirt. Don't pull your shirt up. <laughs>